So, um, hello and welcome to this month's episode of the Divine Comedians podcast. I'm your host, Paula Wiseman, and today I'm lucky enough to be chatting with writer, performer, author and comedian Tim Ferguson. So, hey, Tim, it's fantastic to be chatting with you today. And lover. I never get... <laughs> I forgot that one. It's always just one-on-one things, but it would be nice to be thanked by people at large, <laughs> knowing that while they're sleeping, I'm quietly plugging away. <laughs> so you grew up in uh, New South Wales, in Australia. So what was your childhood like? I know your mum's there in the background. Um, so were you, a, like- were you an outgoing kind of kid or were you fairly quiet? Yeah, Paula, my mum is here, so I've got to be very, you know, circumstance. <laughs> my childhood was a non-ending, unending, you know, parade of joy and, oh, hang on, she's left the room. My life <laughs> was a living hell. Um, in fact, I started life in Singapore for the first seven years of my wow. life. Uh, my dad was a war correspondent in Vietnam, um, running around getting shot at by Americans of all people. <laughs> Um, and then, then we moved to New South Wales, to Sydney, um, because Dad was a journalist, Yeah, uh, we were always on the move. So we lived all over New South Wales, uh, which is a beautiful place. The only thing it does not in any way resemble is the south of Wales. <laughs> it resembles uh, Abu Dhabi very much. It looks a lot like parts of Saudi Arabia. Um, and occasionally, after a good night on the piss, it looks a little bit like the shores of Dublin. But um, South Wales, no. But yeah, wonderful place to grow up. Uh, we spent most of the time in the country and then in an unfortunate place, you may have heard of it, called Canberra, which is the nation's capital. Yep. Which is a, it's, a bit like making, it's a bit like making Sligo the capital of the Republic of Ireland. <laughs> Why? Well, because nobody's going to move there unless they really have to. Or you could put it in Cork, except nobody can understand. They can't even understand it when someone says they're from Cork. <laughs> so, I mean, were, were you quite, a, I don't know, were you quite a noisy, well, not a noisy child, but were you, were you fairly quiet or... Yeah, I was very quiet because I was always the new kid, Paula. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I suppose so, all that moving. Nine, yeah, I went to nine schools. Oh, wow. So every 18 months or so, I'd be the new kid. Um, I kind of developed a, a wry sense of humour. Yeah. Um, but uh, was never outspoken about it. But I used it to confound bullies occasionally. But uh, on the whole, no. Most comedians you'll find the ones who are actually comedians, not people who grow up saying, I want to be a comedian, because that's not the same. Um, They usually have some sort of reticence to speak to anybody, and I shared that as a child. Yeah, so, I mean, what what was the plan for when you left school? Was there any kind of career path that you were heading towards? Well, I was gonna either be His Holiness the Pope, (laughs) and it was like god that's too much homework and what (laughs) um and uh then i thought oh i could become a lawyer and then i accidentally started busking on the street with uh two other guys paul mcdermott richard feidler and we would go busking all the time and it paid really well the more noise we made and the stupider we were um, so we weren't standing on the street corner singing, it's not time to make a change. It's late. Like all those other losers that you walk over when yeah, you were, yeah. you know, going down the street. Um, we just made a lot of noise and we'd set fire to ourselves. Which we called <laughs> a magic trick. There was no trick. We'd just get newspaper, set it on fire in a garbage bin and put Paul in it. And that was entertainment. <laughs> so, so my career decided itself for me. Yeah. So, I mean, how did you, how did you, you three meet initially? Was it just you, you were just busking separately or? Look, recollections, Paula. Uh, <laughs> uh, let's call them mixed. Two hard questions. 
I had a firm recollection that I met Richard on the street. But of course, I did meet Richard on the street, but it was after meeting him somewhere else. The yeah. trouble is, as I said to Richard when he corrected me, is that our first meetings just weren't interesting because, well, look at you. <laughs> uh, so, uh, and there was a guy, Paul, who was a couple of years older, seemed mm -hmm. a bit wiser. He was at art school where they, it's just a place where you go where uh, you're pretty well going to fail at everything else. Um, and you go, well, I can draw. Well, can you? <laughs> I've got four-year-olds who have a better sense of colour than me. But uh, so we were sort of around in this uh, drunken milieu of Canberra, uh, a very cool and exciting time creatively uh, for some reason, uh, or for a very simple reason, is that Canberra is very spoiled because right. it's the nation's capital. So if you want a theatre, well, there's a choice of three and they're free because it's all government sponsored. And so uh, we found it very easy to sort of um, eventually get our acts together. But just busting on the street with those two was a way of being cool in Sligo, it's like wow, <laughs> you're the most famous people in Sligo. Much the same, Canberra, Sligo, Sligo, Canberra. Yeah. So, for anyone that's not familiar with your work, um, you're probably best known as being one third of the Doug Anthony All Stars. Um, so, I mean, what do you remember of your first proper gig? Do you have any memories? Or have you kind of wiped that out of your memory? Uh, yeah, people were. We got paid twenty dollars each, and I think we got free hot dogs. <laughs> After the gig, it was made quite clear that they would prefer that we never come back again, and that uh, that sort of thing just <laughs> amusing. And we had older people there who could have been hurt. Um, the New York Times called us the Sex Pistols of comedy. Wow, which we were a bit offended by, mainly because. <laughs> Sex Pistols were a bit shambolic, <laughs> didn't write great songs, but apparently there was something else about the Sex Pistols that was revolutionary. Um, and so, uh, yeah, yeah, it's a very, uh, and, you know, we've been touring up until COVID, really, uh, where it's, a, it's an act where when people say, ooh, man, it's edgy, ooh, wow, it cuts to the bone. Uh, we're going to go on stage and set fire to the place. <laughs> People who come thinking, wow, it's going to be edgy, uh, don't usually realise that the the people who are going to be offended will be them. Yeah, yeah. Quite often you have comedians who are like, oh, man, I'm glad my nana didn't see that. <laughs> It's much better to do a show where people think, well, okay, I was laughing, but now I will never get that idea out of my head and I'm disgusted with myself. <laughs> Comedy has to, if it's going to be edgy, it's got to put a javelin up the nostrils of the audience sitting in front of it. And I'm not talking yeah. about the woke people because those poor darlings can't go to comedy anymore. Yeah. Because um, one of the rules of uh, woke comedy is that it can't be funny. But it's, uh, yeah, for people who think that they're cool and they've seen a lot of comedy and what could go wrong, they are the enemies uh, of the Doug Anthony All-Stars and we will do everything we can to make them think twice again before going to a comedy venue. Yeah, yeah. So your first real exposure in the UK sort of came through the Edinburgh Fringe Festival. So, I mean, what, what do you remember of your first shows in Edinburgh? I mean, I, I heard, I've heard so many stories. You know? <laughs> we turned up, follow, we turned up in Edinburgh without a venue. Without oh, wow. A, we had a show, but no venue uh, and no accommodation. We turned up. The nice guy, Richard, uh, at the Pleasant said, well, look, come on over and... Uh, we'll see what we can do for you. And thankfully, he helped us get some uh, accommodation. And uh, and once he'd seen the act, said, "Oh, I think we can. <laughs> I, I think we can put you on in one of the rooms." And we had a, <laughs> a midday slot. 
and nobody came, of course. It was the, it's the Edinburgh Festival, which yeah, at the time yeah. had a measly 1,500 acts. It's now got over 3,000, yeah. but nobody came. So we went busking and then we'd heard about this place called the Bear Pit. And we were immediately attracted, Paula, because uh, all these other comedians warned us against it. Right, yeah. Uh, don't play in the bear pit, which was in the, <laughs> I don't know, in the student building somewhere. Don't play there. It's on the top floor and it's full of fascist skinheads and Edinburgh dockside workers. So like no students, nobody called, no nothing. Um, and they said, you'll be eaten alive. Um, but we thought, eaten alive, what are they talking about? We're three middle-class buskers from Canberra. And so we... <laughs> We performed on the first night we performed there in this kind of ragtag collection of other comics and jugglers and one very sad mime with a kazoo. <laughs> we were the last ones on because the guy said, you're seeing music. Nice way to finish. And we went on and we thought the only way we're going to get the attention of these people, because they were just heckling and yes. were being thrown off stage. Yeah. One of them was escorted by two guys. That was the mind was escorted by two guys. I tell this is no, no, it's I'm telling you the truth. Taken off stage and stabbed with a chair. No. And the cops came up after the show and everything. Like it was, I mean, you know, there is such a thing as cutlery, you monsters. So we went on and we just picked a fight. <laughs> and we just said, what are the things that you're not supposed to say to Scottish people? And away we went. <laughs> and it was, um, what was that song? Let the wind blow high, let the wind blow yeah, high. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> all, all, all the lassies say, hello, Don, are you a puff, mate? <laughs> like, what? what? What did they sing? And there was shouting and singing, screaming. And there was a guy who who said, what was it? Oh, yeah, he said, he was just heckling us. Yeah. And I couldn't understand a word he was saying. So I told him to go back to Norway. <laughs> and that didn't quite work. And then he kept going. So I said, go back to London, whereupon the whole audience turned against him, even though they knew he was local. And that's when we worked out, oh, that's how we do it. We divide and conquer. And conquer, yeah. But I said to them, you know, where were you at Gallipoli with all your shouting and all your chest beating and all your women who will only go out with guys who look like you? Where were you <laughs> in Gallipoli when we were dying by the thousands on the beaches? I'll tell you where you were. You were around the corner in Suvla Bay having tea time with the English. And this guy goes in. We were not drinking tea with the English. And I had to think quick. So I said, no, mate, you were serving it to them. It was, like, it was like someone had been pouring petrol all over the floor. And then they threw down the match. And so tables were overrendered. People were shouting. They were furious. Wow. Um, they, were, they were throwing things at us. Paul jumped up onto the balcony and was pouring <laughs> beer jugs over people. And then Richard went to uh, our cracking standby if everything fell apart, which was to start singing, God save our praises free. <laughs> and it worked because we figured that as tough as they are, the Scots will lick the English boot. Otherwise, they, you know, the rebellion of Scotland is still being negotiated what, by what? Oh, the council. So that's good. <laughs> By the local government. Oh, bravo. That's a revolution. <laughs> and so it worked. And then the word went out. And before we knew it, they were throwing us on Channel 4 and Friday Night Live. And, you know, the next thing you know, we were famous in our own lunchboxes. Australia had no idea because there was no such thing as the internet. So we went home yeah. and we said, you know, hey, man, we, we just were on English television, they were like, yeah, right. <laughs> sure you were. So we invented a prize. We pretended, and this was after we asked the guy who ran the bear pit, and he said, yes, uh, we pretended we'd won the Fringe Club Award. Right. There was no award. 
but we asked him, can we say we won it? He said, well, yeah, sure. Like, <laughs> you won when you don't give a shit. So we said, well, we did win the Fringe Club Award. What? Really? Oh, yeah. How are they going to check that? There's no such award. So that would end up in the papers and then it was, you know, winners of the Edinburgh Fringe Club Award, the Doug Anthony All-Stars. Oh, my God. Yeah, I heard, a, I heard a thing about um, that you used to tell stories to in interviews to journalists to see if they would see if they would report the things that you'd. Oh, yeah. What I sort mean, of things were you, were you telling them? Well, politicians lie to journalists. And <laughs> yeah, yeah. Because we've done a story with the Evening Standard and the one they printed was just full of bullshit. And we yeah. thought, okay. So... Oh, we told people we were going to be in the Batman movie, the first Batman <laughs> movie, Michael Keaton. And, I mean, how do you prove that? How do you disprove that? Or call yeah. Warner Brothers? Or, like, nobody checked. And so we ended up on the front of magazines as uh, Joker's going wild with a picture <laughs> of Jack Nicholson. And, uh, like... <laughs> There was one time we were doing a TV interview and the interviewer was asking us about what's Jack Nicholson really like? And Paul said, well, and he tapped his jacket pocket. He said, well, we've got a whole bunch of photographs with us and Jack. He said, well, can I see them? He said, no, <laughs> they're private photographs. <laughs> the guy believed it. As comedians, you don't have to tell the media the truth. Why would you? How can you build a myth about yourself if it doesn't start with you? <laughs> you know, I'm sorry to all the journalists out there who think you're worth your salt, but, you know, you're not. <laughs> That's a good argument. <laughs> I mean, and then you were nominated for the Perrier in 88. No, we were offended. <laughs> well, because, you know, we're supposed to be rebels and now... Yeah, exactly. And now the bureaucracy wants to get involved. <laughs> oh, right. Yeah. Oh, yes. Those Australians. And of course, they didn't give us the prize because um, you couldn't trust us. Right. Yeah. So nice for a bit of a nomination. But, you know, bite me. People get very excited about things like the Perrier Award or whatever it's called now. But really, it's just a committee of what? Reviewers? Oh, who aren't comedians of like are there comedians on that board well of course not no because no really good comedian has the time to sit in judgment of all the other comedians yeah, yeah true so it, it's like getting so we're getting all the people who wrote all the reviews together a whole really and other participants you know other people who sat in the cheap seats who got in for free yes no we're asking all <laughs> They're saying that within limits, the Doug Anthony All-Stars are worthy of being in a short list of people who can be regarded as the best. Like, fuck off. <laughs> so that was our attitude. And in 2016, when we returned to Edinburgh, uh, I was speaking to a couple of lovely people who were working on whatever the modern Perrier Award is. And I said, well, can you tell everybody on the panel to get fucked. That's G-E-T-F-U-C-K-E-D from the Doug Anthony All-Stars. <laughs> and it, it worked, Paula. It worked. <laughs> they, although I don't think they did get laid the whole festival. <laughs> Awards are there for the media and for the yeah. bureaucracy and for the institution. They are not there for the artists. Yeah. Because they pitch one person against the other and they make artists uh, try to get through some kind of sieve that has no definition and no clear uh, imperative. And it's, uh, I would do away with comedy awards, having won lots of them, even the fake ones, <laughs> entirely. <laughs> So let's talk a little bit about the All Stars look. I mean, where did the where did the whole look come from? The you know the jackets and the outfits and things. Oh, funnily enough, they were Salvation Army jackets, and we just cut off the skirting bit at the back and turned them into you know very nineteen eighties looking 
bolero jackets. Yeah, yeah. And Paul painted sort of oil paintings on the back. Yeah. And then we just stuck a bunch of, you know, flurries of stamps and Russian medals to make us look important. <laughs> but the good thing was that at a time when, uh, what did they call it, alternative comedy was riding high. Yeah, yeah. Um, alternative comedy, Barry Humphrey said, alternative comedy, does that mean you're funny every second time? <laughs> <laughs> um, at a time when people are walking on in a very, you know, you know, wearing jeans and kind of going, hello, everybody, it, you know, socialism, two socialists walk into a bar because that's perfectly allowable, you know, kind of comedy, um, which we found just wet and predictable. Yeah. Uh, to have three guys bound on stage wearing what looked like sort of half-assed military uniforms was immediately setting us apart. And, you know, as we walked on stage, I'd be talking to, pointing at people and say, you straighten out that fucking haircut, mate. <laughs> sit up. And so here we were, suddenly these Australian disciplinarians correcting people's posture and haircuts, uh, wearing uniforms. And it was a good contrast to everybody else who were kind of post-enlightenment. Hello, just like you. I'm just like you, just normal people. We're not Bernard Manning. We don't have wives <laughs> to make jokes about. What we're talking about is social issues, social issues. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Jeremy Hardy had a line which I really liked. He said, people say, you're a socialist, are you? I, st I see you've still got shoes on. <laughs> I thought it was very funny, but I thought it pointed out a hole in everything that was being pushed. Because you cannot trust the left wing. Yeah. Any more than you can trust the right wing. The left wing think because they went to university, they were spending <laughs> their time well. Most of them did an arts degree. Well, let me pick up something so I can fucking drop it. <laughs> that was drop the thing. It. I suppose it was all like the Cambridge footlights and stuff, you know, all these Oxbridge yeah, you know, yeah. people at the festival at that time. Yeah, and Cambridge, it should be noted, is where the idea for the People's Front of Judea came from. <laughs> yes. The left-wing groups who never do anything, they just have meetings. When someone comes in and says, but Brian is about to be crucified, they say, this calls for immediate discussion. I mean, I vote left, but I don't like hanging around, you know, left-wing people. You know what they're like. It's just they <laughs> sit around agreeing with each other. I'm much rather going out, getting drunk and arguing with fascists. <laughs> at least then you've achieved something apart from going, yeah, oh, I know, oh, I know, yes, yes, oh, yes, in the environment, oh, yes, oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. So I, I think I, I read somewhere that the, the jackets were never, they were never washed at any point in their existence. Is that, no, is, that is that true? Well, we couldn't, Paula, because of those <laughs> I suppose all the bits on them and stuff. Well, and it was the oil paintings on the back. Yes, yes. That were separate, but they, yeah. So we couldn't put it in the wash because the oil had yeah. been oil. Although we never tested the theory. So yeah, yeah, they were covered in, they were covered in fungus. Paul <laughs> put his into a plastic bag. Oh my God. A garbage bag. Um, in one of our rare holidays, two weeks later, opened it up. It was covered in white fungus. <laughs> and, like covered. And said, what are you going to do? We just put it on and said, I'm going to sweat it out. And, you know, the sweat killed it. Because that's credibility. That's sort of the Sex Pistols. -y that's hardcore, of. yeah. It's hardcore. <laughs> <laughs> Lazy. Don't, you've got to remember, laziness is always a big component in things like punk music and the punk ethos. It doesn't really involve a lot of being organised. Do you have Malcolm McLaren for that? Yeah, yeah. I think, was it Eddie Izzard said that you, or was it that the All-Stars were the smelliest comedians at the festival or something? Yeah, poor Eddie had to share a dressing room with <laughs> more than one. And it was almost like, I remember, it was almost like trying to get a cat into a bucket of water. <laughs> you really had to, 
people say, well, you can't stand out there because the crowd can talk to you. <laughs> okay. <laughs> yeah, we, we stank. We, we did. But there was nothing we could do about it. It was for our art. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you all had your own kind of separate personas. You know, Paul was this very kind of, I don't know, he had a bit of an aggressive, it seemed to have a bit of an aggressive streak to him. And um, Paul Richard would get picked on quite a lot. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And my job was kind of to be, um, to be like Chico. Paul was kind of like the Groucho. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He's in charge, but has two idiots to see through his terrible plans. I was kind of like Chico. Yeah, yeah, I agree with Paul about everything without actually having heard what he just said. So I was the unreliable lieutenant. And yeah, Richard was the baby. He was the harpo, the one where the audience goes, oh, it was then picked upon by the other two. So it was the Marx Brothers, but which is based upon, of course, an ancient archetype trio from Comedia, which before them goes back to even Maximus Plautus the plays of the guy who, before the birth of Jesus, was yeah. writing satires. He was Roman, otherwise known as Italian. I don't know why they go on about Romans. Like, you mean Italians? Oh, no, they're all like Italians. Oh, I think they are. So you were, you were performing together for the guts of 10 years initially. Um, so, I mean, the, the split must have been quite hard, you know, the, the, the kind of the first when you disbanded? Oh, yeah, yeah, it was, um, I didn't know I had MS. I just yeah. knew that I had all these weird, wacky symptoms that, you know, were going to make a touring comedian's life um, a bit too awkward, although yeah. I was young and stupid at the time. So yeah, yeah, I was the one who blew the whistle. Um, and uh, yeah, I suppose it was very difficult. I mean, in a way, we'd kind of done everything we wanted to do. Yeah. And we hadn't, re we'd always talked about, we've got to make a movie, but we had no idea how to make a movie. We'd made our sitcom, we made it again, which was a science fiction sitcom called Das Kapital, Das with two A's, which was, it's worth Googling to educate yourself in just the sheer, uh, the imaginative ground you can cover. This is way before, who were they? Um, I don't know, a couple of English guys. I'll offend them by not remembering them. <laughs> but kind of an absurdist kind of TV show, except we had puppets and animation, stop frame animation, politics, violence, guns. There was a, a show that we'd have ads for called Wayne, Wayne Kerr and his friends, Spanner and Paddleport. And it was just guys with guns. And it was, uh, it's worth checking out. If you like sex and violence and comedy, then stop fucking around and go watch Vast Capital. You can see the series. So on uh, YouTube. I mean, you were pretty uh, prolific, you know, releasing albums oh, yeah. and... Yeah, yeah. we. I mean, we. Yeah, we'd done everything. We did. We had made one album as well that we never released, partly because we were just too busy. Yeah. And then when we turned around, everybody had lost the tapes anyway. But um, so it was. Uh, yeah, yeah. But then when we picked it up again with Paul Livingston, the guy who plays the character Flacco, on guitar, because Richard's now a radio star. Yeah. And an internationally proclaimed author of great books that, uh, yeah, we thought let's do it again. And, you know, it's been, it was great fun going back to Edinburgh with a show that set fire to the room again with me in a wheelchair. And you would yeah. think, oh, no, how do you turn up with a show that outrages 18-year-old comedians when you're old men and one of you is in a wheelchair, well, <laughs> we took care of that because I'm the only one in the wheelchair and there were two other guys who aren't. That's a clue. And so, yeah, so that was, that was good fun. I mean, the, the thing about, you know, having 
MS and trying to be a comedian of any kind is like it's pretty challenging because you know my legs don't work and I spend most of the time in a state of state of confusion thanks to the powerful drugs I have but I just changed my archetype from the unreliable lieutenant or lieutenant as the English like but we don't like them because you're in Ireland so those fucking English <laughs> you know can lick their computer screens in fury <laughs> the, the inst I changed the archetype like the uh, the essence of what I was doing mm. uh, to uh, one of the modern archetypes which is called on their own planet and on their own planet is an archetype which I stole from Phoebe on Friends. <laughs> right. It's where they can kind of operate in the real world, just don't ask them a question. Yeah. Because whatever comes out won't make any sense. If you know Friends, you know those songs she sings, where she sings it with total passion, like it's a real folk song, but the lyrics are like smelly cats, smelly cats, <laughs> what are they feeding you? Smelly cat, smelly cat, it's not your fault. And she's singing it like it's a real thing, but it is of course incomplete. And so when you put that in to that same dynamic with Paul as the grouchy shouting aggressive ringmaster, and um, Flacco as the silent Harpo guitarist, uh, you have a similar dynamic, which is I am an unreliable lieutenant who has something really important to say. Whereas before I was just an unreliable lieutenant. Now it yeah. was just like, um, now I was the guy, <laughs> the guy in the wheelchair who you have to stop everything, <laughs> everything <laughs> for because he's got something he'd like to say. It's like, oh, fuck, he's off again. <laughs> and that was, uh, yeah, worked out very well. But there are terrible, terrible things that happen in that uh, show. You can somehow, I don't know, maybe spend the five pounds and get over yourself, or the five <laughs> punts and get over yourself, um, and see our documentary, Tick Fucking Talk which we made over three years, uh, which has a lot of the elements of that show in it. And you'll be able to see how the world's most politically incorrect comedy act survived having a guy in a wheelchair. And when you start to think about it creatively, you don't have to think too hard. It's like, oh, I get it. So you can do and say anything about the guy in the wheelchair. Yes, you can. <laughs> he wrote the joke. I was very impressed with your tri triangle playing or lack of. Well, thank you very much, Paula. You know, a lot of people, a lot of people always laughed at the fact that I was the triangle player in, <laughs> in the band. But uh, I spent a lot of time working on that triangle. With, uh, it's quite a subtle and easily underestimated instrument particularly when it comes to interrupting people yeah I could, I could see there was a lot of work went into it you know well it's timing isn't it <laughs> <laughs> oh so i mean what is it what is it you think about the all-stars that it, uh, that endeared them to the to the british public obviously the all-stars did a lot better sort of back over the years in in the uk than in australia do you think it's like a shared a shared sense of humor between the Aussies and the, the Brits or? Um, there's a, uh, no, no, the short answer is not at no. all. Um, the thing, I think it's, it's a closer relationship between the Irish and the Scottish and perhaps even the Welsh and yeah. Australia. Um, because uh, those are countries that share with Australia an open, and very healthy disregard for the institutions. Yeah. Um, so the royal family, ask anybody in Scotland what they really think <laughs> after a year, and you will hear what they think about Harry and Meghan's, you know, disappearance. Um, and of course, most of them will say, good on Harry and Meghan, you know, good on them for getting out of it. 
so I think it's there's a healthy disregard for those kind of institutions. Australia hasn't because it was, you know, like I said, uh, modern Australia was a prison colony. Mm. Prison colony with a much better view, more sunshine and Bondi Beach. <laughs> uh, there were rumours uh, flying around that uh, Harry and Meghan had bumped off the Duke of Edinburgh. <laughs> well, I know that. <laughs> 99 year olds <laughs> i know i know you know <laughs> they can get away from you but it's yeah i think uh there is something about and there was there's a definite license being australian um performing in the uk because people in their heart of hearts figure you just don't know oh they just don't understand the issue of brexit yeah, that's why they're saying how fantastic it is. <laughs> uh, when we came back, you know, Brexit was this was pre and then post Brexit. It was um, like my line was that <clears throat> we we think Brexit's fantastic. Why we all Brexited two hundred years ago and it's working <laughs> out fine, fuckers. <laughs> and of course, most of the lefty comedy audience write-ons are all totally against Brexit without actually stopping to think, oh, actually, it might make life a bit funnier. So, and of course, like the first time we went to Edinburgh, we were the only comedy act in the festival praising Margaret Thatcher. <laughs> I like what she's done, like what she's done to your uniforms. I mean, because, you know, that's surely the job of satire is to not agree with the prevailing view because there's no surprise. If I come out and I'm a left-wing comic and everybody in the audience is the left-wing, um, then the best I can hope for is for the audience to cheer and applaud my punchlines. Yeah. And maybe go, blah, 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 blah. Maybe now we'll all get some work for the workers. People go, hey. <laughs> yeah. Half-assed laugh as opposed to I've just been kicked in the gut and had my eye spat in and I've got no other recourse but to involuntarily and spontaneously burst out in laughter. Yeah, I mean, your, your songs were always very kind of topical and a little bit confrontational, um, you know, some of the topics that you covered. I mean, who who wrote the songs? Were you, did, were you all involved in that or was it? Paul was big on uh, writing a lot of the songs. Uh, which was great because I was busy doing other stuff like <laughs> trying to make us famous. Um, and so he and then Richard would jump in with the music, but Paul would come in with lyrics and say, you know, how, how do we turn this into a song? And he came up with some great songs like I Want to Be a Mexican Hitler, which is <laughs> yes. really just a, a series of juxtapositions of Mexico and Nazism. <laughs> Here comes the new world and the new water. Rock stocks burning south of the border. You know, like, what? And uh, he did have a nice Irish one. I've got Krishna riding shotgun on the stagecoach of my life. Um, which, you know, is a great idea. The idea of Irish Hare Krishnas who we met in Dublin. What are you people doing here? <laughs> you were saying you, you did the, uh, the Fringe recently. Uh, in Australia. Um, did you and Paul have a, have a catch-up? You, I think you were both performing. Yeah, we were both performing, but um, no, I think we weren't there together much of the time. Yeah, yeah. Or I was certainly busy doing whatever it was. <laughs> you know, when, I when I arrive at a festival, I tend to work from dawn until the next dawn. Wow. Um, just because it's the only way to make a festival work. Yeah. You can't turn up and say, well, I will perform from uh, 9 p.m. until 10 p.m. <laughs> yeah. And then I will rest for what? The next 11 hours? Uh, <laughs> I think you'll find that it's 23. What? Yeah, yeah. So, uh, but um, his show went very well. And uh, he was, you know, taking people out in the street and causing all sorts of trouble. <laughs> my audience was far more orderly. I kept on locked up. <laughs> yeah, there's a lot. It seems to be a lot of stuff online of uh, Paul Paul performing out in the streets during the festival. Yeah, yeah, which is the old busking roots. Yeah. 
I was doing a show, uh, Motivation for Idiots, uh-huh. where I was tearing motivation apart because uh, people are always telling me, oh, man, you are so inspiring. And the only thing that's inspiring is that I'm sitting in a wheelchair. If I was sitting on a couch, <laughs> you know, 12 hours a day, people wouldn't call me inspiring. They would call me, you know, either COVID affected or unemployed. <laughs> So I, I looked at, you know, what Tony Robbins says and what, like, that book, The Subtle Art of Not Giving a Fuck says. Yeah, yeah. Uh, that book, The Secret. And I read all these books and I realised that at the heart of them, it's not, it's not that it's bullshit, it's just that it's impossible. Yeah. What they ask, like, the seven habits of highly successful people but you're going to put those seven habits on top of the habits that you already have. Where is that going to leave you time for your new pastime of shuffling through the options on Netflix? <laughs> you know, it's just not going to happen. So I, I broke it down and I came up with a new thing called the, the, the motivation for idiots, one step plan. And I came right. up with a one step motivational plan that actually works. Uh, that you can do and it doesn't take any effort at all that's that's the trouble with motivation they say you want to get motivated okay write down this list like oh fuck <laughs> what let's decide what you want oh man i don't know okay having decided that you must persist and persist and persist it's like no that's not human it's not human so the one-step plan leaps over that and gives people a one-step plan for getting their shit together. I can't tell you what it is because I <laughs> but it's very good. So, I mean, you, you've literally turned your hand to so many things, uh, performing, a teacher, writer, artist, with your, your stuff on Redbubble at the moment, your artwork, um, an actor, film screenwriter. I mean, do you have a favourite aspect of what you do do you have a kind of a favorite thing that you like to do or is it just nice to be doing lots of different things it's always good to try and i mean even though that sounds like a grab bag of things it's always sort of always trying the same thing in various formats yeah i mean creatively it's always even the motivation show is about turning the audience's perceptions upside down, making them horrified. Like there are horrible jokes in there about Michael Hutchins and God knows what, but it's all about the same thing. Um, And we're making another movie, which will be quite a, uh, it will be like being put in a tumble dryer. (laughs) It, It should be funny, but afterwards we'll make people feel a bit kind of, (laughs) dusty to say the least so if I have a favorite thing the thing I really enjoy at the moment is um, teaching explaining how a comedy works there are so few people um, in the world who can explain what the underlying principles of comic storytelling are a comic character like how do you write a joke yeah. Um, Dave Cohen, I think, is the best British explainer of not just how it works. It's not just analysis, but it's also like tools and techniques for writing your own comedy. Yeah. Um, not only is he a brilliant stand-up, um, but Dave Cohen has written some great books. I can't remember their titles. <laughs> <laughs> But I think he wrote uh, How to Be an Averagely Successful Comedian, which is not only a very funny book, but it tells you how to do it. You know, it tells you how to get it done. I wrote the book uh, The Cheeky Monkey um, Writing Narrative Comedy, which tells you how to write a sitcom. Like, what is a comic character? What are the six basic principles that all good comic characters have in common? Um, and I, so I really love working with people on their concepts um, and show them how to build it and then pitch it. Because that's the thing about comedy. Um, even if you're unaware of what the comedy principles are, Paula, um, 
if your comedy is working, I can guarantee I can take the fun out of your day by telling you which principle is present. And it's, uh, uh, so for example, like people will say, there are puns and everybody knows how that works. It's a yeah, word yeah. or two words yeah. that has, you know, multiple meanings. Not so many people are aware of uh, things like uh, the self-referential jokes, which is where the punchline relates directly and only to the setup. Yeah. So say Stephen Wright has a fun self-referential joke, which is, uh, I went to this bookstore and asked the lady, where is the self-help section? And she said, well, I could tell you, but that would defeat the purpose. <laughs> so it's just the punchline relates directly to the premise, which is self-help. Yeah. It's that simple. Or you can make, so that's a self-help confirmation. You can make a self-help um, negation say from uh oh yeah muffy the vampire slayer who says i tried to be patient but it took too long <laughs> or you can make a paradox there are only three kinds you can make a paradox uh we might as well reach for the top shelf john stewart who says um religion it's given hope to people in a world torn apart by religion <laughs> or uh what's that other one oh yeah uh no one goes there anymore it's too crowded <laughs> which is how many times have you suggested a nightclub and people have said basically that so it's um these principles are unseen the audience has no idea about them so they will hear a joke and because the sensibility and the the subject matter is different they won't stop and think, oh, hang on, wait a second, wait a second, it's the same invisible principle. Just like a word with two meanings, this is you set up the premise and you confirm, negate, or turn it into a paradox. Yeah. I mean, so when you were when you're in lockdown, obviously, did did the way you work, did the way you work change, or did you kind of have adapt? Like, I know you, you do a lot of stuff on Facebook and, uh, you know, you're, obviously you're teaching classes yeah, and stuff. I do that stuff to stay in touch with people. Facebook's yeah. fun. Twitter's fun. Um, and I don't know, I can't remember what the third one's called. Oh, yeah, Instagram. There are good ways of saying, particularly in COVID, I'm still alive. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and I'm busier than you, which is always good to do because, you know, I'm in a wheelchair. Da -da. <laughs> so it's always good to make people who aren't in wheelchairs feel deflated at their own lack of action i say twitter is uh twitter is just a place to go and have an argument these days you know yeah oh i do love i do love twitter i like confounding people <laughs> just by you know sometimes if they're really wrong the best thing to do is agree with them and just push them in an inch further in the direction they're headed, where they go, oh, hang on, what? Oh, so <laughs> I hadn't thought of it that way. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's been a very busy period. Wrote a life, life show, finished a book and a movie script and what else? Oh yeah, did a whole bunch of teaching. I do a thing on slow coach which is called SLO Coach, which is a British idea where, you know, people can hook up and for a pittance, uh, get their stand-up routine or their script um, or their sketch uh, coached by me. Oh, right. So I'll watch it, I'll play it back. Like you send in your five minute video of whatever your routine is and you get me, being able to say, this bit's good, that guy could be stronger and here is how. That same thing of saying, this is a way to strengthen that joke. Move that word there, take that bit out, you know, this, that and the other. And so far it's been going really well. I always enjoy that stuff and people just get better. Because my thing is, do you want to be better and every, than everybody else on the bill 
And do you want to be the act that everybody remembers? Well, as a Doug Anthony All-Star, I can tell you, there are things you can do that will mean the other comedians won't want to follow you. Or if you're put on last, nobody will remember anyone else who was on the bill. Yeah, that's the thing. I mean, how do you learn from, it's all well and good writing stuff, but how do you know if what you're doing is, is good enough? You know, it must be, it's nice for people to be able to have somebody that can give feedback and. Yeah, and it's, but the main thing about feedback is not just, I like that bit, but I don't <laughs> yeah. like that bit. Take but that I see what you're trying to do. This is how you want, this is, this is an unseen principle that the audience doesn't know about that will get you there faster. Yeah. So that you can do uh, what Lenny Bruce said, the American comic said about comedy, which is uh, make an audience laugh every 15 seconds. Yeah. On average. Yeah. And so, and you've got to do that because you can't be sitting there for a minute waiting for a punchline. <laughs> wow, this one must be really good. She's going on and on. <laughs> and how do you do this? How do you surprise an audience with something that makes sense? And that's how you make people laugh. Surprise an audience with something they already knew. Quite often when you hear a punchline, it's like, oh, shit, I should have seen that <laughs> Or it's a bit like, why did the chicken cross the road? The answer, the punchline, is the most true answer to the question. I won't tell you what it is. I don't <laughs> want to spoil it. But it's all about delivering truth in a way that surprises people. Surprise people with something they already know. That's why comedians get paid the big bucks. And there's a, there's a specific range of principles like magic tricks that will help you build your own um, moments of laughter that are totally yours because it's your subject matter. It's your attitude to life. It's you making the point you want to make. Yeah. Um, and it's based on a principle that works much in the same way as sawing a person in half. It always makes the audience go, oh, scratch <laughs> You can throw a bit of blood and guts in there for, you know, for the 18-year-olds who think they're something. They go, oh, man, yeah, I've seen that before, but not with that much blood and guts. <laughs> and then she gets out of the box and she's perfectly fine. <laughs> What's going on What there? a disappointment. <laughs> uh, so if you, dear listener, are interested in getting a bit of that coaching, it's slow coach without the W, slowcoach.com. Just go there and you'll be able to find me. Um, in a few weeks, you won't be able to because I'll be busy because we're going back on the road. I'm going to be doing another show at the Opera House. Fantastic. But, you know, you might as well get some coaching because nobody else will give you the right advice. I don't trust them. Um, although you should know that I probably won't have pants on while it's <laughs> that's, that's a new world. It's a new world. Pants free, people. We'd expect nothing less. Fuck no. <laughs> so, I mean, talking about your career, I mean, what have been your, your own kind of personal career highlights? What are the things you're most proud of? I made a show called Don't Forget Your Toothbrush. Oh, yes, yes. Which we bought off... What's that nice man who the... Uh, Was it Chris, Chris Evans did the UK Chris, version? Yeah, Chris Evans. We bought it off Chris Evans and made it in Australia and made it bigger and better. We had a studio audience of 400 people. We invented all these new games and it was just enormous fun uh, leaping around. We had uh, John Farnham's touring band. <laughs> <laughs> Here. And it was, um, that was great fun, just throwing money at people. I once gave a woman who, uh, the only thing she'd done was be a single mother. And I'm running around the audience in a coloured suit and I stopped and said, you know, Deborah, whatever her name was, yes. Uh, what do you do? I'm a single mother. Here's $5,000. <laughs> and then the music starts up again. It was like, it was, and that was one of the 
best moments of my life was giving five grand to someone for no reason, apart from the fact that, you know, she's a single mum, she could do with it. Um, and most recently, I think, um, yeah, taking the All Stars back together. Yeah. Um, back to the UK, playing in London, um, in Soho. Yeah. And outraging the Soho people who turned up thinking, well, apparently they're, they're quite saucy. And then ripping <laughs> their heads off was, that was good fun. Yeah, they were great. They were great shows. Um, I, I met you after one of the, one of the London shows, many, yeah, means, right. yeah, many, many yeah. moons ago. Yeah, yeah, that was great fun catching up. But, you know, if you're going to, if you're going to shock an audience, you've got to, be sure that you shock your own audience yeah yeah otherwise just be like one of those other comedians who talks about well my mom i tell you what her girdle i tried it on the other day you know, <laughs> I, you know those people i'm sure they're doing well but you walk out and you can vaguely remember well i don't know it was good she talked about her mom and Oh, it's just fun. And if it's just funny, uh, what are you going to put on your headstone? Yeah. You know, I was I was amusing. You want to have a headstone that's like Spike Milligan. Yes. Where <laughs> even then he's still poking at you. I've got a headstone designed myself, which is <laughs> here's a funny thing. But you know, it's it depends what you want your comedy to do. And I know there's a real place for that kind of affinity comedy, yeah. I call it. Um, and it can, you know, be lots of fun. <laughs> or it's the cops. But, <laughs> but if you want to do comedy that shocks, it can't be comedy that shocks the grandmothers of Seven Oaks. <laughs> you know, because... Because that's already been done. And uh, if you are a young comic, watch the sketches of Benny Hill and see what your parents threw away. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, he was very kind of of his time, wasn't he? Do you know what I mean? If you, if you had that on TV now, people would be going berserk. Well, yeah, because, you know, all he had was boobs, for God's sake. <laughs> okay, it's a show with boobs. And slapping yeah. a little bald man on the head. Yeah, yeah, slap a little bald man on the head. Then he just relax about <laughs> this guy who would, you know, wiggle his eyebrows and go, ooh, boobs. But um, apart from that, he had some really great sketches. It was really well written. The best comic minds in British comedy television were working on the Benny Hill show. So it's worth getting over whatever preoccupations um, people have about uh, the work of Benny Hill and saying, okay, like Winston Churchill, he may not have been perfect, but he did sue some, do some very good work. <laughs> like, you know, getting rid of Hitler. Oh, yeah, that's, <laughs> oh, well, that was Churchill, was it? Right. <laughs> I thought he was just a guy who said nasty things about, no, 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 he did other things. <laughs> um, he did that all on his own. Like, yeah, yeah, because at the end of the day, Benny Hill was working with the same comic principles that Ricky Gervais works with, Yeah, that Stephen Wright works with, that Brooklyn Nine-Nine works yeah. with. The principles of comedy go way, way back. And the sooner you relax into the fact, the sooner you can start doing stuff that people talk about for a long time. Yeah, talking about Benny Hill. I mean, who would have been? Who would be your comedy heroes? Who kind of uh, floats your floats your boat in, well, in the comedy I'm world? The UK, I will say the name. You know, may we all just shake our heads in just awesome, in hushed or Jerry Sadowitz, the greatest comedian oh, yes. on the For the last forty years, Jerry Sadowitz has been on the cutting edge of cutting edges and standing there on the cutting edge saying, well, this is fucked. <laughs> and the fact that you think this is the cutting edge is because you're a cunt. <laughs> and that guy is awesome. I think, uh, you know, people, we saw his show in Edinburgh 
only a couple of years ago yeah. and people might say oh but he says the c word <laughs> yeah like and you never have and your children don't <laughs> right oh yeah you're like you know it's um Sadowitz is 10 kinds of genius and with that you get you know 10 different kinds of crazy but the wonderful thing about jerry is that off stage he is the sweetest gentlest most considerate human being you could ever meet yeah, yeah. and then he goes on stage and you are, <laughs> you are in jerry's world um if you haven't seen jerry sadowitz hurry the fuck up and go see jerry sadowitz and take the advice of uh, comedians like Jeremy Hardy that yeah. you shouldn't as an absolute goad for you to go and see him. In the first festival we went to 1987, uh, Jeremy asked for Jerry Sadowitz to be removed from the festival. He's that good. And I'm assuming, I'm assuming they didn't. <laughs> they couldn't. Jerry was <laughs> Jerry was there with a with a thing you hang clothes on <laughs> in the busking mound before it became, you know, owned by Virgin in the busking mound, um, preaching to people from a girl's <laughs> couch manual. <laughs> like, it was the best busking I'd ever seen. Yeah, yeah, go see Jerry Sadowitz. I'm sure there are lots of other comedians, but once you've seen the best ones, you sort of lose interest in catching up on what the young people are doing. Sorry, young people, but... <laughs> yeah. All the new stuff is shit, basically. Well, I'm sure the new stuff is exciting, but the sooner they work out that people like Jerry Sadowitz have done it way better... Yeah, yeah. Um, ..with magic tricks, <laughs> um, the better they'll become. Uh, every generation of comedians thinks they're the first ones. Yeah. And the sooner they work out, oh, wait a second. Oh, so they were doing this in ancient Rome. <laughs> uh, ancient Italy, I think, is the word you were looking for. Okay, let's let's talk a bit about music now. Um, have there been any kind of big music loves in your life, be it a band or a, an artist? Well, ACDC, you can't go past Yeah, them. yeah, yeah, yeah. The thing I like about ACDC is the thing they're not often recognised for, and it is joy. Yeah. There are, there are a few bands who are that heavy with their guitar sound who only do joy. They don't do that Metallica bullshit where they go okay we've done hard rock and now we're going to sing a song about our mum <laughs> like what and it's going to be slow have you heard that song it's just like oh for god's sake i didn't buy this album <laughs> talking about that um acdc kate bush yeah yeah all of the kate bush i used to go out with her and she's a wonderful woman I mean, sorry, I went out with her in my mind. <laughs> I was going to say, is this something that we're, we're just learning about now? Yeah, no, she's a wonderful woman. And also Taylor Swift, I think, does great stuff. And I'm saying that only to make people look at their voice noise box and go, what? <laughs> yeah, Taylor Swift, I think, just terrific. Miley Cyrus, also really good, does really good music. And Beyonce. Um, if you haven't heard an entire Beyonce album, again, get over yourself and stop going, ooh, those nasty Americans, and listen to a Beyonce album, and you will see what the best minds in world music can put together if they have a long weekend and several million dollars. Yeah. So did you have you ever managed to see ACDC Live? Oh, many times. Yeah, yeah. yeah cleansing but other than that i don't really have much interest in music i certainly have no interest in reading interviews with musicians it's like, <laughs> us. It's like meeting musicians kind of defeats the object you know, a little bit yeah because asking a musician so what's your music about you just get 10 minutes of <laughs> yeah. 
it's about you, it's about me. It's kind of about the whole thing. It's kind of like Russell Brand, except less Russell Brand than Russell. <laughs> I mean, if Russell Brand could play guitar, you know, God knows we'd all be sitting around listening to Russell Brand, you know, in music. Ah, uh, he'd be the full package, you know. Well, yeah, now he's become a guru, which yes. is... The, the last resort of a rogue. Um, so what can we expect from you, Tim? What have you got in the in the pipeline? Oh, well, um, writing... You've got the a, film, obviously. Yeah, yeah. So that should, be, that should be fun if we get away with it. And then I am writing <laughs> a book called Stand Up Comedy, how to write it, perform it, and turn it into your career using those ancient principles that I talk about. Um, so, like, what do you do in your modern stand-up comedy that they were doing in ancient Greece? And it's all the same stuff. I'm also yeah, yeah. On Aristotle's book of comedy because he, if he did write it, I think they burnt it. But I reckon I can guess what it had in it. And I've done a lot of work on uh, Greek plays and that yeah. sort of thing. So I'll be able to draw upon examples that no one's ever heard of that will make me seal seem very very credible <laughs> um, and so that will be fun and of course a new live show having done motivation for idiots i'm going to bring them bring them down so it's going to be you know the the most deflating comedy show on earth which is about, uh, so you're going to die. Don't kid yourself, you're going to die. This is how to prepare. That's the thing, you know, they say about like, you know, Monty Python were doing things that they were like, oh, Python were doing things that people were, had, had never done before. But again, you say, you look back in time and so the Greeks and the Romans and the all these guys. Oh yeah, I mean, yeah, I do a class on Life of Brian where I completely take the fun out of the whole thing just by saying that's what this joke is. In fact, you know that one of you're all individuals. Yes, we're all individuals. It's just a self-referential negation because what's it about? Everybody being individuals and the punchline negates the premise by everybody speaking with one mind. Yeah, yeah. You know, even the guy who says, I'm not, in fact, is a guy who's confirming the premise by trying to negate it. Like, the principles are all over the place. And if you're a comedian, the sooner you get your head around them, the sooner you will be the act everybody talks about. That's the thing, like the All-Stars, you've got such a, a religiously devoted group of fans, you know, the All-Stars fans over the years. Well, yes, and we'd like to thank them for <laughs> each individually. <laughs> and also, and for the sex. We want to thank them for all of that. <laughs> they, they really have given it a, a jolly good English go and good on <laughs> So thanks so much for chatting with me today, Tim. It's been an absolute privilege. Oh, it has been for me too, Paulo. You <laughs> are not without your legendary status. 